Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Some people are like, this is a great Sunday. I got an extra hour of sleep coming into the 11 o'clock or 1045. You're like, this is amazing. My kids did not believe the same thing, and they woke up very early. Uh, so I'm ready to take a nap. But instead, I'm just going to talk a lot. How's that sound? Um, thank you, Mackie, for sharing your story. Uh, she didn't mention one other thing that is amazing about her. And she's a phenomenal designer, and she designed this awesome sticker that will be on a t-shirt very soon in a couple weeks. But if you want a free sticker, they're out on the lobby. Be sure to grab one on your way out. Uh, but we're thankful for you, Mackie, and just your honesty and humility uh, in your story. So we are in John chapter 3, kind of in chapter 2 as well. And uh, I want you to turn there in your Bibles. Where This is the fifth week of John. We've been going through some different unique pieces of John with our hopes to finish uh, in a few months. I'm going to take a little break for uh, Advent slash Christmas, which is just around the corner. Uh, we played a Christmas song in our house a couple days ago, and I was like, this is crazy. So for those of you who are big Christmas people, you're pumped. Um, but some of us like to keep it to just December. So <clears throat> got to go Thanksgiving first. So week one and week two uh, of John were essentially this what we call the prologue. And John, who is one of the disciples of Jesus, writing this story of the gospel account of Jesus, gives us a very overarching understanding of Jesus theologically. So week one and week two is this chapter one. It's very, uh, there's very big statements, lots of symbolism. He calls Jesus the word, the audible words, the displaying of God that became flesh, became human among us. And uh, sort of explains that in this very you know, big vision way. And then he zooms in into now he's going through the journey of Jesus through different stories. And so week three, we talked about the sort of the hodgepodge following of Jesus, these disciples who had kind of known him or grown up with him or grown up in the area, trying to discern whether or not this guy who was your friend and you played kickball with is now like the Messiah and trying to reconcile that and navigate that. And um, just, it's really cool to see just each person's disciples' faith and just how they navigated that. Uh, and then week four, which was two weeks ago, we talked about the, Jesus' first sign, uh, which was the turning of water into wine at a wedding, and how big of a deal that was, and what symbolism that showed. And, and John does this really unique thing, which we will be very, uh, very thorough on the next several weeks, is that John picks seven signs or miracles, and seven um, uh, conversations, or a lot of scholars call them discourses, because sometimes they're debates, sometimes they're conversations. And John puts seven of each in the entire gospel, all culminating in the resurrection as the greatest sign in and understanding um, that he is the life and light of the world. And so we've been going through those, but the first sign was this turning of water into wine, the idea that the old law, the Jewish law, the way that people had been living was, was not working at the time, and Jesus had to bring something much greater, and he releases this wine at the end of the party that should have been at the beginning, right? And it's this idea that, that Jesus is creating something great and rich for the time. Uh, but now today we're talking about discourse number one, and so that is this long story that I like to call uh, Nighttime with Nico. And uh, it is, it is uh, a really great, profound conversation. It includes the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16. So I'm very excited to talk with you about that 
and hopefully affirm some of the things that you just loved about that verse and also teach you some things maybe you didn't know that uh, create a lot of greater weight to this chapter. So if you notice, we started in verses 23 through 25 in chapter 2. That is because um, the context of this conversation is important. Jesus, who had just done the, the, the sign in Cana, traveling all throughout Galilee, heads to Jerusalem for the Passover, very common as a Jewish person once a year. There's several festivals, but the biggest one, the Passover, you all go to Jerusalem and you basically party there for a week. Think about if you're an OSU fan uh, and you live somewhere out of the state, we have a few of those, you come back for the Ohio State-Michigan game and it's just a blast, right? And uh, as long as Ohio State wins. But uh, you come back and it's this big party, right? So Jesus is back in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem at this time now, there's all the Pharisees over all the regions that are all here gathering and dealing with the, you know, their kind of rituals and things like that. And Jesus actually before, we're not going to read this, but he goes and he flips over the tables. He's mad at them taking advantage of people in the temple. And, and he creates quite a stir. All of this happens. All the Pharisees see all this. They've heard things about him turning water to wine, probably doing some other things that John doesn't care to record about because, like I said, he's very focused on his seven signs and, and, and discourses. Uh, but then they get to this, this part where it, it, it gives this little understanding of Jesus' heart. And it's really important to know this because it's kind of like the psychology of Jesus understanding uh, us as humans. And it says that a lot of people believed in his name because they saw these signs, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, meaning he would not go into relationship with them, which is interesting. Because he knew all people, meaning those people, he did not need anyone to testify Uh, about man, for he knew what was in man. And what this is basically saying is these people believed in the things that he was doing, but didn't understand the reality of Jesus and why he's here. Which is the same reason why I tell people, like, you can believe in God, but that does not mean that you believe in Jesus. There's a difference. And and, and Jesus is going to parse this out over the next um, few verses with a very specific religious leader. So in verse 1, we see a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling Council, he came to Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus, two things we want to know about this. Um, the first is that he is not just a Pharisee. He is a part of the Jewish ruling council. So he could just uh, hypothetically be a very large, big deal as a Pharisee, or he could be a part of the formal Jewish ruling council, which is the 70 men that make up what's called the Sanhedrin. So you'll see the Sanhedrin later. They're part of who convict him during his trials. But the Sanhedrin are the 70 basically best Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders who make up the governing board of laws, of rules, of judging people, things like that. The best way to think about it would be like an Ohio senator. We have two of them that represent our state in D.C., right? But we also have 33 others that represent counties in Ohio. So hypothetically, you're an Ohio senator. It could mean two different things. It could mean that you are over a small county, or not county, district in Ohio, or you are one of the two that go to D.C., there's kind of a big difference between being, you know, the, the representative of a small little district that's made up or being one of two in the entire state. And so that's the way to think about it. He's not just a Pharisee. He is a high-up authority leader. So that's, that's one thing that's very important. This is not just your average Pharisee. This is a high-level leader, which means he's, he's probably really smart or he's older and he's been around a while to be able to reach that type of status. The second thing is comes in his first initial um, Um, talking point. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He's using plural language. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. So he starts off saying, Rabbi. This is the second thing that's important. Rabbi, in this term, and it's translated correctly and really well, is that, because you could say teacher or you could say rabbi. There's a difference. Rabbi is is a very much endearing term of respect. 
Sometimes later, Pharisees use it as like a condescending, like, all right, teacher, tell us, you know, explain this. But he's using this in a very respectful, curious manner. He's also using plural language. So what he's saying is, there are more of us that are just like me that didn't, didn't have the, uh, the strength to come here, you know, and talk to you. And so we don't know if that's more of the Sanhedrin or religious leading council or just more Pharisees. But a lot of us, when we read the Bible, most times we see the word Pharisee, Sadducee, religious leader, scribe, we're like, oh, guy that hates Jesus is anti him, trying to kill him, right? That's not the case. There are, there are a lot of these guys who are trying to figure out, is this guy really the Messiah? They're really doing an honest effort. The problem is politics, right? If you are, uh, let's just say um, that you're a part of the Green Party, because that's not controversial, because we're voting this week. If you're a part of the Green Party, okay, and you have a policy that you want to run forth with all your other Green Party friends, right? Um, and you, you know you're going to have it ready in two years, but they have a policy they want to they run right now, and you don't agree with it. If you don't agree with that policy, chances are they're not going to vote for your policy in two years, right? That's how it works in politics, unfortunately. So a lot of these Pharisees are really curious about Jesus, but they're very careful in how they do it, because if they start asking the wrong questions, the rest of the Pharisees, I mean, they'll kill you pretty quick in this culture. So there's a lot of fear around all of this. Nicodemus comes to him at night. Now, most people believe that Nicodemus did this because he didn't want anyone else to know. He wanted to be hush-hush about it. You know, he didn't want to ask questions and be embarrassed or whatever in, inside of all these other public people. And that's very well possible. I think that's a lot of the case. However, John does not really care about time or day or season or really any detail for that matter. Uh, whereas Luke is like, Jesus healed the tibula of this guy at 426 Eastern time, you know, daylight savings, right? Like it's very specific. He's a doctor, he cares. John, not so much. So when John uses nighttime as a, as a time stamp, he's probably potentially using it for more than just nighttime. What I think he's getting at is this symbol of, of Nicodemus and these people being in the dark, literally, like, spirit, like physically in the dark, but also spiritually in the dark, and finding the light, the light of Jesus in this conversation. And that's what we're going to get into, is what is Jesus trying to do in this conversation to answer a very basic but also very profound question, what does it mean to be saved? What is belief, and what does that do for us? Which feels like a very easy question. Uh, feels like we might have an easy answer, but as you'll see in this dialogue, it's not as simple as we always think it is. And so as we, we jump in here, that's, that's the conversation going on. Nicodemus is advocating for some other people. Hey, you're doing these things, so we're not dumb. There's got to be something. you got some juice, magic juices here going on. Is it God? Is it other? What is it? And what does it mean? Tell us what then your teaching is in light of this authority you have. And so Jesus replies, some of your translations of his older might say like, um, truly, truly, or verily. Uh, the net's a little more modern. It just says, I tell you the solemn truth. It's just showing a, a seriousness on what he's going to say. It's like if you were to tell your kids, listen up. You know, it's a serious, I'm going to say something serious. I have your attention. He says, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Obviously, you know, Nicodemus is being a little bit um, playful here and condescending of like, come on, old men can't come out of women. It's not possible. Like, we all know that. It doesn't happen. Now, it's possible Nicodemus is thinking, is Jesus talking about some sort of reincarnation? You know, like, kind of like Scientology, you get your own planet and you can become an animal if you want, you know, and you want to become, if it's your dream to become a leopard, here's your chance, you know. Uh, it's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about reincarnation in terms of like becoming another human or being born again as an old guy. 
But what's, what, what we're going to notice is that there's two, there's two sort of dimensions or paradigms that these two people, Jesus and Nicodemus, are dealing with. Nicodemus is like, here's the physical world. Here's the reality that I know to be true. And my entire life is guarding that reality in light of what we think of God. And you're coming over here with all your abstract stuff, and I don't like it. And it doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, here's what you're thinking. Here's what the truth is, being born from above and seeing the kingdom of God. Both of those things are very much not even close to his world and his perception. And he's like struggling with what that even means. Now, we've studied Matthew for over two years. If you've been a part of that, you know essentially what the kingdom of God is. It's basically heaven. It's, it's the entering of salvation. It's entering into the community of people that follow Jesus. That's basically what it is in short terms. So when you say, I enter into the kingdom of God, essentially what you're saying is you're, you're being saved, you're being delivered, you're into God's family here, but also in then heaven for eternity. That's the simple version of kingdom of God. However, born from above is a new phrase. This is what John uses, and it's kind of unique, and it doesn't always make sense, especially Nicodemus is very confused by it. He's thinking literally a physical, like, born from above. Uh, but, but Jesus says, hey, if you're not born from above, you can't basically be saved. So there's some, there's some serious stock on the line here. If you, if you don't figure out what this means, good luck. You're not going to be saved. So I want us to spend some time and talk about what does born from above mean. But what's funny is the next verse, Jesus actually clarifies what it means, but with an even more confusing set of words. So Nicodemus, you know, his dimension, Jesus, born from above, enter the kingdom of heaven. The next verse, Jesus says, I tell you, tell you the solemn truth, meaning yes, yes, and more. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot not only see, but he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Once again, Nicodemus is here. Jesus is bringing his language closer to a reality for Nicodemus to understand. Nicodemus still struggles. Now, what's funny about this specific verse, you know, you might, you might have read this chapter before and been like, man, Nicodemus, what an idiot. Like, why doesn't he understand this? Well, I will tell you that this verse has been argued about for centuries and is the reason why we have dozens of denominations. So it's not as simple as just being mad at Nicodemus. Because we, as modern, pretty smart people, still struggle with a phrase, set of words, in this verse. And it is born of water and spirit. You see, because if you take born of water and spirit, uh, very literal, this would, be cause, uh, this would cause a uh, theological belief called baptismal regeneration. What that means is that when you uh, accept Jesus, you believe in him, it's good news, right? And you're saved. You're not saved until you're baptized because Jesus says you need to be born of water and of spirit, meaning to be born of water means to be baptized. Therefore, if you accept Jesus right now after the service and we don't get you dunked and you go out there on your motorcycle and you get run over, sorry, right? That's just how you didn't get baptized. I remember being a youth pastor at a camp that was very interdenominational and all these kids, you know, raised their hand, accept Jesus. And a couple of those churches are like, let's get him in the pool right now. And they did, baptize him at like 10 at night, you know, and um, because that's a common belief in a lot of, in a lot of denominations. So, like, that is the sign and seal of your salvation that, that guarantees you this because it's a physical thing, and they, this is a very strong proof text for that belief. Okay? There's another issue with this that causes another split, and that is the idea that there are two baptisms, baptism of water and then baptism of spirit, and when those things occur. So if you're a part of a charismatic tradition, Pentecostal Assembly of God, they're going to talk a lot about what's called the baptism of the spirit. They're going to say, yeah, you've been baptized in water, but have you been baptized in the Spirit? And you're going to go, I think so. <laughs> and they're going to say, well, do you speak in tongues? And you might say yes, you might say no. If you say no, they're going to say, well, then you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, because the sign of the baptism in the Spirit is typically speaking in tongues. It's miraculous things. So 
Now, I'm not here to trudge on anyone's stuff, but all I'm saying is this is not as simple as we think it is, this passage. We can read John 3.16, and I can close it by, we can head out and feel good about ourselves. Uh, but if you know me and you've been around at any point, we're, we're going to talk about this. And so I don't want to like slam any of that. I'm just letting you know, this, these are commonly argued um, positions and debates. Me personally, our church, the fellowship that we're a part of does not ascribe to any of those things. We believe the baptism of the Spirit is the second you believe in Jesus, whether you say a prayer, you confess his name, you raise your hand, you, you just are giving over your soul to Jesus that you receive the Spirit immediately. You receive the Holy Spirit. And then baptism for us of water is just symbolic. It's an outward expression of your inward reality. So there's nothing special about our water. I can baptize you in Kool-Aid. We'll do it, all right? It doesn't need to be like, I don't need to anoint it. It doesn't need, you know, sometimes it's colder than we like, but it's just a symbol. And we immerse you in water to just show you the death of sin, right, and coming alive in Christ. And Jesus, regardless of what you agree about this, Jesus commands us to be baptized. So we do that as a, as a form of honoring and following our rabbi, right? So that's what we believe about baptism. Um, and it's important to know that because some of you, this might be a really big deal. Some of you might be like, I didn't even know there was different stances on baptism. I just thought you'd do it, right? But if you grew up Presbyterian, you may have been sprinkled or baptized as an infant as a covenant sign of God's faithfulness, completely different belief about what baptism is. Uh, if you're Catholic, it's pretty similar, right? Uh, you might also be like, why are we being dunked, but then these people are being sprinkled? You know, there's, trust me, we'll have another conversation another time. Um, but what I want you to know is that I actually don't think this passage is, is referring to really any of that, uh, which is not a spicy take in any capacity. Uh, a lot of scholars would agree with this, and I'm going to explain why. However, if you believe it's all about those things, it's totally fine. But what I believe born of water and spirit is actually getting to uh, and why it's caused confusion is because the word water and the word spirit can have a lot of different meanings, separately and then together. Water, in the Old Testament, can oftentimes be a negative connotation. It's implying death or drowning or uh, weight and oppression, right? But in baptism, it's negative into a good thing, right? We're like being cleansed, which is kind of a good thing, but requires dark, right? So it's, it's a weird way to put it. It also can mean uh, not just cleansing, but sustaining of life. So water sustains our life, but it can be used as a spiritual illustration of sustaining your life, right? Jesus says, the woman in the well, later we'll see in John 4, I can give you everlasting water that we will no thirst no longer, right? That type of idea so it's confusing, water. And then the spirit can mean like the actual Holy Spirit, capital S, spirit, or it can just mean spirit, meaning of purification or even a negative spirit, right? So what is it, Trey, right? That's the difficulty that we deal with here. Um, a lot of other people, other, I say other people, another common view is that water is indicative of your physical birth. This might be a little bit grotesque, but you're born into water, fluid, and that's your human birth. And then spirit is your spiritual birth. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, hey, everyone has experienced a physical birth. You are alive and you are here today because you were born. But there's another birth that will give you eternal life, that will capitalize upon your physical life into a spiritual life. And that could be what he's saying. And that's very possible. I think the main reason why I don't love that perspective is because the next three verses, he will get rid of water completely and use the word flesh. I think he would use the word flesh if he meant flesh in this instance, and he doesn't. So what is he saying? And this is where you either have lost you or you're a grammar nerd, and you're like, let's keep it going because we're going to talk about a preposition. So this is exciting stuff, guys. Come on. First service was wide awake, so I know it's exciting. Uh, 
the preposition of, born of, changes and can potentially say that both of these things are together, meaning water, spirit, or spirit, water, not water and spirit. Now I know you're like, well, it says water and spirit, Trey. Why would it say that? Let me give you an example. I bought a product recently from a company called George and Willie. Okay, that's the name of the company. They make signs. And um, if I said, hey, I'm friends of George and Willie, what would you assume that I'm saying? Would you assume that I have a friendship with George and I have a friendship with Willie? Would you assume that I have a friendship with George and Willie collectively? When the three of us get together, we're all bros, right? It's like this great time. Would you assume that I am friends of the company, George and Willie, which is named after George and Willie, but is a larger company that's not just George and Willie? You don't actually know, right? You don't know what I mean by that. However, all of those are in the right area, right? We're like, okay, some sort of George and Willie is associated with this, right? And that's what I'm getting at with water and spirit. I actually think the best understanding of this is the holistic idea of water and spirit when when put together means life. It means eternal life, which if you know what John 3.16 is all about, it's all about eternal life. And when John talks to the woman at the well, or when Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John 4, he is giving her eternal water. And so if we put these together and we take the idea that it's eternal life, he's talking much more about just baptism, which makes sense because Nicodemus is not even bringing up baptism. He's not even like, what's John the Baptist been doing? He's not bringing up any of that. Why would Jesus be like, you need to be baptized, Nicodemus? He's talking about here's what it means to have eternal life and to be in the kingdom, be born again and be born in eternal life. And so that's kind of what he's getting at. And this actually fulfills Old Testament prophecies a lot more accurately because a lot of these Old Testament prophecies talking about water and the restoring of the Israelite people is not just being baptized. It's, it's this larger understanding of receiving life. And so what I think he's saying is being born from above or being born from water and spirit is being born into eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now, the next verses, if you're still with me here, are we doing good? Okay. Uh, in verse 6, then he says, what is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do you see how he then distinguishes these two, but he doesn't use the word water anymore again. He changes it to flesh. And now he's saying there is a physical life, and there is a spiritual life, and they're both separate. And he says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will. You hear the sound it makes, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What he's saying is, look, Nicodemus, your reality is merely physical. My reality is both of these, and I'm trying to draw you into this spiritual realm that I'm communicating in, that I'm talking in, that I'm trying to explain, but it's like wind. You can't hold it. You can't create a law on it. It's not, it's not that simple. It's much more than that. Being born from above is more than just being reborn again from, from an old lady. It is something much deeper and out of this understanding that you have. Being born of flesh makes sense. You can see it. You can feel it. Being born of spirit is just as important, if not Jesus' agenda, more important. But it is not as simple as equating the two. And so he's starting to deepen this argument of Nicodemus trying to be drawn into understanding this. And I mean, we're, we're not, I mean, this isn't anything crazy if we think about it. Like, what do we believe? We believe that we believe in Jesus, that we are made new as a new creation. I don't know about you, but I didn't come out of the baptism waters or even believing in Jesus like a whole new person physically. You know, when I was younger and I followed Jesus, I wanted a beard. I didn't come out with a beard, Okay. I didn't just get everything I wanted physically. It doesn't make any sense, right? And so what he's saying is, look, just because you're made new, it doesn't look like you're not just going to be like, wow, I'm taller now, right? Or I don't, my leg doesn't limp anymore, right? But what does Jesus do when he does signs? He's showing you what spiritual reality has the capability of doing by doing physical signs. 
So when he heals someone's leg from limping, that is not the point. The point is the deeper spiritual reality that he has the power not only to heal the limped leg, but to heal and forgive your sins. And that is what he's showing. Nicodemus, you guys see my signs, but you're still only seeing the sign for what is objectively saying physically. There's something much deeper than that. And of course, Nicodemus, how does he respond? Verse 9, how can these things be? Right? He's like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't like it. And Jesus says, uh, this is a tough one, but he kind of slaps him back. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? I feel like, I, I wish I would know if he actually said this to him or just muttered it, because it, it's this sense of like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is the best we got. Like, this is, this is, this is why I'm here in Nicodemus. You guys are struggling, you know? Um, yeah, he's like, if, you know, if your lead mechanic doesn't know how to fix an engine, like, y'all are in trouble, you know? Like, how are you mechanics, right? That's, like, basically what he's saying. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we don't hear any more words from Nicodemus. So I think he got hurt by that one. Um, but then Jesus says, again, yes, yes, I tell you the solemn truth. We speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen. But you people, he's talking about his disciples and him, but you people do not accept our testimony, which is funny because he said, we've seen your miraculous signs. But what is the testimony? It's deeper than the sign themselves. If I have told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's he's talking about himself. And he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have what? Eternal life. That is the point of this conversation. And will then lead, next is the most popular verse in the world, John 3.16. Now, before we get to John 3.16, though, what is John 3.15 talking about? He's like a serpent in the wilderness, Moses. Um, if you read this story in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, there is this story where the Israelite people are essentially being cursed, which means without God. They're having these diseases. They're dying. And God tells Moses to stick a serp- have like a serpent on a staff. I don't think it's a real serpent, like just like a wooden whatever. And he sticks in the ground. And anybody who looks at it, is saved from their illness. Anybody who gazes their eyes upon this, this thing on a stick is saved physically from their ailments. Jesus says, look, I'm going to be put on a stick, and those who gaze upon me will be spiritually saved. That's what salvation means, deliverance, saving. And so the same way that this serpent on a stick has been salvation for you is the same way that I will be salvation in this spiritual realm that will cause you to have eternal life. And that's what he's saying. And I don't know about you, but the main barrier in this whole situation between Nicodemus and Jesus, yes, the people are causing Nicodemus to be in this political situation, but at the end of the day, this is Nicodemus's chance to decide, do I believe this or not? He's alone with Jesus. He's having a conversation. He's still letting the external forces affect the way that he thinks. And this serpent that the Israelites were called to look at, it was, just, it was a simple thing. Just humble yourself and look at the serpent, right? Not that hard. However, it's just as easy to follow Jesus and say, do I believe this? Am I going to let myself get in the way of this? And this is why he then says, for this is the way God loved the world. You've probably grown up knowing it, for God so loved the world. For this is the way is actually more accurate because it's, it's basically saying everything Jesus had just said, this is then the way that he proves it. It's not this abstract idea, God sent his son, it's this is how he did it. This is how he gave eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved 
through him. Jesus did not come to just be another Pharisee to beat down people with the law. He came to fulfill the saving of the people and deliver them just like the serpent, but not just from physical death, but from spiritual and eternal death. And so that's what he's getting at with Nicodemus. And that's what the point of this whole passage is getting at, is Nicodemus, here's what it means to believe in me, not just my signs. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I think about this verse, I think about it like on the streets, telling someone who's never heard of Jesus, like, hey, Jesus, God, like, God loves you, John 3.16, right? This is being told to an incredibly smart religious leader, not like a super broken person that's like super downtrodden and right on the street. Not saying that that won't preach, because it will. That's why it's John 3.16. But the context of this is actually to a very intellectually smart person. Someone who, for all intensive measures, should be able to understand this and doesn't. And so that's telling. What is, what is, why is this passage so important in this context? It's important in this context because a lot of us are smart. A lot of us know a lot about the Bible. Not that we can be like a Bible scholar, but like we understand what it means to believe and not believe. Do I believe in this or not? Do I place my life in this or not? Do I trust it or not? But the biggest barrier that gets in the way of this is ourselves. Do we have the humility to submit ourselves before the Lord? It's that simple. It's that hard, but it's that simple. Pharaoh is a great illustration of this. You know, in the Old Testament, Moses is trying to free the Israelites, and, and Pharaoh's just like, not going to happen, right? And he's got this hard heart. And what does it say? God kept hardening his heart. And they got to the point where his heart was so hard and it was not turning back. He was never going to turn back. He was never going to hear anything from the Lord. He was walking in complete darkness with no attempt to see the light. At that point, it's like, all right, Pharaoh, you do you, man. You condemned yourself. And that's what the next verse says. He says in 18, the one who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But the one who does not believe has been condemned already because... He has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. He's basically saying, look, if, if you don't already like, humble yourself to understand this conversation, you're already condemned. You're already the problem. Like, you're, you are the problem between this reality becoming true in your life. And so what Jesus is doing is he's basically just cutting down Nicodemus' pride in a good way. He's cutting down the Pharisees' pride. He's, he's not like getting in an argument about well, you know, like, you guys have done bad things and misinterpreted laws, and he does get into the nitty-gritty of that, but his priority is this is what life is, and you, a lot of you are not willing to acknowledge it. You'd rather walk in the darkness and not humble yourself, because that's all Jesus is saying. You just got to humble yourself. You are the person getting in the way of your own saving because you think you can do it on your own. You think your own way is right. You can't see this reality that I'm trying to put in front of you. And then he says, now this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. The priority of someone who loves darkness is to stay in hiding. The priority is to not humble yourself and allow people to see your brokenness, your mistakes, your sin, your transgressions, all the fancy words of bad things, right? Your, your evil deeds. That is the heart of an evil person. Now, I know you're like, well, I'm not evil. I don't want to go out and kill people, right? But God's standard of evil is pretty intense because he's perfect and he's holy. 
So you're stealing a pack of gum from the gas station is evil. I know you're like, well, I don't know. It's not that big of a deal, right? God can't let little menial sins in the kingdom of God because it ruins the entire point of the kingdom of God. And so if you're not willing to humble yourself, you're just going to be like Pharaoh. You're just going to keep walking in the darkness. That's why John the Baptist prepares the way by saying, hey, look, repent. Be baptized your sins. You can't do it on your own. He started to warm people up. So then Jesus is like, hey, repent. The kingdom of God is here. They're able to actually turn and see what the kingdom of God is. It's through a person and his teaching and his love and his eternal relationship with him. That's the kingdom of God. And when we do not allow our deeds to be exposed, I'm saying evil deeds here in this context, it's pride. It's the same reason why for decades in the American church, uh, if you're like, 35 or older, you probably came to faith raising your hand while everyone else's eyes were closed at a Billy Graham crusade or even a church or maybe a camp. All right, everyone's eyes closed, heads bowed, right? And then you're like... (laughs) And and everyone else is like... (laughs) What, Johnny wasn't a believer and now he is? This is crazy, you know? I remember uh, in my last church in Tucson, we had this guy come in who was like a, he was basically like an evangelist. He was a great guy. And he had this just phenomenal 30-point, just like, or 30-minute, just wreck you sermon. Like just, you know, he had it down. And at the end of it, he had the classic raise your hand. And it was so good that it was, everybody was just like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Like, <laughs> and so I'm standing in the back, you know, and He's like, you know, every head bowed, hands raised. And just people everywhere raising their hands. And I'm just like, we got any Christians here? Like yesterday? Like are we even a church? You know, we're like, and, and, and so the, the spiritual carnage of like that week, just being like, hey, like praise God that you raise your hand and you believe in Jesus now. But like what was going on before that then? You know, you were a leader. You led a community group. Like what's going on here? And it's a mess, right? But it's a mess because... It's just pride. It's just pride getting in the way. Some of you have raised your hand years ago, and you say, I believe in Jesus, and you just know there's things you're holding on to that you're not letting Jesus in on, or that you're not confessing before others, or in your marriage, or in your friendships, or in your relationships. And here's the thing. I'm not going to get into the theology of saved, always saved, how, what that means, all that, but all I'm saying is it's darkness. It is. If you're hiding things from Jesus, it's darkness. And what he says is those who practice the truth, right? Those who practice the truth come to the light so that it may be plainly evident. And I just want to encourage you right now, if there's areas that you're walking in darkness, I'm not here to say whether you're saved or not saved, but what I will tell you is walking in darkness is only going to make you more prideful. It's only going to make your heart more and more hardened, and it's only going to lead you down a bad path. And so Jesus says what I think is just a very confusing verse that no one ever talks about because everybody stops at John 3.16 because it's great. And he says, but the one who practices the truth comes to light. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, I, doesn't that kind of sound like I have to do good things? And then I'm like, I'm saved, right? And it's a little bit, it makes me a little scared, right? We just celebrated Reformation Day a few days ago. I ain't going back, right? Like, I'm saved by grace and faith alone, not by the things that I do. But this sounds a little bit, like, what, what is he saying here? What is he getting at? The best way that I describe it is this, you've heard me talk a lot about spiritual disciplines and, you know, the word discipline means to correct and, and to train, right? It implies an action. However, discipline typically like, oh, my parents disciplined me as a child. It's kind of a negative thing, right? The long-term effects are typically good unless you over-discipline, but discipline, the intent of the heart is love. 
And when we talk about spiritual disciplines, I'm always very careful at saying, look, spiritual disciplines will not save you. The things, and if you're curious, prayer, fasting, scripture reading, accountability, all these things. There's tons of books on them. Spiritual disciplines will not save you, but they will help you know more and more how much you need saving. And practicing the truth is not going to save you, but it will make you realize more and more how much you need saving. You are not the truth. The things that you do are not the truth. There is a person who is truth. How do you know the person who is truth? By practicing his truth. How do you experience the love of Jesus? Hopefully, it's by his people. We have failed that one for a while. But hopefully, it's his people and the things that he calls us to do, right? And if you try to practice the truth, you know it's not going to last long because you're not going to be able to do it. It's like impossible. That's kind of the point, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I should love and pray for my enemies. Oh, if I have any sort of anger before someone, I should go to them now and confess and repent. Oh, I should give. I should not be a slave to money, but a slave to God. And that means being generous, right? Or, oh, I should... I should not be boastful about the good things I do, like praying in front of other people, right? Or, you know, all these things, and you're like, those are really hard. And then Jesus says, yeah, and if you don't surpass the righteousness of all the Pharisees who've done all these things, then you're not going to make it. And you're like, that's not very encouraging because you are not capable of being the truth. You are not. You're only capable of trusting in the truth. And so practicing the truth as it won't save you, but it will humble you, to the point of you willing to see the light is better than the darkness and the, this terrifying fallout of me revealing and exposing these things into the light is far greater than being in the dark forever. I would, I would argue that, you know, if I, if I had everyone close their eyes right now and I say, hey, have you ever had a really hard conversation, confrontation in your life with someone? And everybody raises their hand. And I would say, like, how many of you was that life-changing for? Most of you raise your hand. Some of you went really bad. I get it. But most of you would say, it was, it was actually, like, some of the most defining moments of my life have been really hard conversations. Why? Because it humbles you. And you're asking the question, do I have something to learn here, right? Could I be wrong? Am I being prideful? And this is what Jesus is just nailing Nicodemus with. Is like, you guys see my stuff. You know the, the words of Yahweh, but you don't understand your pride is getting in the way. So as we invite Nadia up, and I want to transition here, I want to close with this last thing. This is a little fun fact about the book of John. John uses the word love more than any other person. Loves the word love. It's kind of funny that he's nicknamed the beloved disciple of Jesus. Total humble brag that he did, but um, he does not use the word love until now. This is the first time he uses it. He waits three chapters to do it. And he doesn't just use any word for love. He uses the word agape, which maybe you've heard. We have one word for love. If I love fried chicken and I love my wife, it's all the same, right? But <laughs> I do love fried chicken. Uh, but I did not make vows to fried chicken. Um, so it's a di different type of love. Well, uh, the Greeks and even, even the Hebrews had lots of different words for love. The Greeks had four words. Agape was the deepest level of love. And it was rarely about a feeling. It was about a conditional choice. You had the ability to make a choice. And it's oftentimes used to prioritize one thing over another. So if, if you were to tell me a story... We're in heaven, and you're like, yeah, I loved my friend. My friend was going to get hit by a car. I ran in front of the car, and I pushed him out of the way, and I saved him, right? You didn't have any feeling like, man, I love you, dude. I'm going to do this. It was just this, like, decision you made, preferring your, your, his life over yours, and you ran in front of this bus, and you agape That's what you did. You took this 
the weight of knowing what's right and what's wrong, right, and you decided to prefer something else over yourself. God agape us by preferring us and, our, and his love for us over the well-being of his son. And that is the good news, and that is the gospel, is that agape love is seeing God trying to pull us from the darkness into the light and seeing who Jesus truly is. So as we transition into a time of formation, we always offer four things every Sunday. First, there's people in the back who would love to pray for you about anything and everything. It's always confidential, and uh, they'd love to pray for you. But in even praises, we'd love to encourage and be celebrating with you in those. Uh, we also have the bread in the cup in the front and the back. It's gluten-free and grape juice, and that is a symbolic reminder of the serpent who was put on uh, a, a, a pole for us to gaze our eyes upon, that we gaze upon the sacrifice that Jesus made, that God the Father gave up his son for us, and when we eat symbolically of his flesh and his blood, his sacrifice, that we are reminded that we are just in need every day. Honestly, should take that every day. And we do it as a community to all remind ourselves that we are all on the same page. And then the other two things we have are an act of giving or bringing. We call it, you know, maybe you call it tithes, offering, whatever. We call it bringing because we believe that everything that God has given us is his. And he calls us to be faithful, obedient, worshipful, and obedient to giving back to him. And so there's a box in the back. You can give there online. And then lastly, we have a time of just reflection, which we just leave as a space for you to pause, to process, and just to reflect. So I don't have any questions. I just want you to sit in this and process it and see where the Spirit will take your mind and your heart. And if there's things to be done that you feel convicted to do, then go for it. Um, But we will leave you some time, and then we will close out in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.